What typically happens with these types of attack vectors, whether they be frankly cyber or, or drones, is that what starts out in the military domain trickles down into the paramilitary domain, terrorist activity and criminal activity. And so when we speak about drones, we, you know, there are three C's. There's careless, clumsy, and criminal. And, and I think um, right now the, the criminal activity with drones has largely been on land, but I'm expecting that we're going to see more and more of it at sea. And we're already hearing about it in discussions that we're having with, with, with prospective clients, that, that it's becoming a concern. Welcome to the Maritime Risk Podcast brought to you by Shoreline Limited, the provider of innovative marine insurance solutions for the shipping industry. Our purpose is to explore the evolving risks within the maritime industry, including environmental, geopolitical, socioeconomic, and security threats such as cyber attacks, war, and terrorism, as well as the more traditional accidents, navigational and operational incidents, and other causes of business disruption. We'll speak with experts to help you prepare for the unexpected and navigate the complex world of the ever-evolving maritime risk environment. Today we will explore the potential future implications of the escalating number of drone attacks in the Red Sea and innovative solutions being developed to strengthen maritime security. Joined once again by our friends and colleagues from Reperion, Andrew Sally and Jesse Hamill Stewart, they are innovators in counter drone technology. With them, we'll explore the complexities of safeguarding merchant ships in these volatile waters, and we'll also discuss the latest threats in the Red Sea, potential implications in other geographies, and the future generally of maritime safety in one of the world's crucial shipping lanes. So, if we may dive straight in, our first question really surrounds the background context of this issue. I mean, we see in the news today, well, this week, that, you know, vessels from Maersk, Navibulg, Ardmore have all been under threat of attack, whether it by, by drone or, or cruise missile in the Red Sea. So could you start by providing an overview of the current situation in the Red Sea regarding drone attacks on merchant shipping? Yeah, indeed. So at the moment, you would have noticed that there has been an increase in drone attacks on vessels in the Red Sea, in particular in the straits leading up to the Red Sea. So the Badham and the Strait um, is where a lot of the focus has been. Now, the reason why this is happening is because it dates back really to October 7th of this year, which is when uh, Hamas, which is uh, the controlling sort of group in uh, Gaza, uh, attacked Israel with a terrorist attack. And that resulted in around a, a thousand, at least a thousand people uh, losing their lives. Now, in retaliation, Israel then essentially declared a war on Hamas, uh, on uh, Gaza, and uh, this resulted in thousands of people losing their lives. Now, in retaliation to this, Iran is is responding to uh, Israel's invasion because uh, Iran is sympathetic to Hamas, uh, and they're responding via their proxies. Now, one of these proxies is based in Yemen, and that is uh, the Houthi force, sorry. So the Houthi rebels, they are conducting attacks against vessels um, which they think contain commodities or even weapons uh, that are headed to Israel. And th a lot of these vessels are moving, these vessels are, are moving through the through that strait um, towards the Red Sea, 
And some of these vessels that have been targeted have uh, contained commodities that are aimed for Israel, but some of them have uh, do not. And that means that a lot of vessels are under threat, which are moving in this particular strait. And that is why some vessels are being targeted with drone attacks in this specific geographic area. So it's a, it's a, it's a very highly geopolitically uh, strategic area. Thank you. Yes. I mean, obviously, we, we're seeing it almost daily in the news, attacks to merchant shipping. And one has to feel for the people who are manning those ships. It seems they, they these seafarers find themselves in, continually seem to find themselves in the crosshairs of somebody else's war, unfortunately, just trying to transportate transport goods around the world. So what is currently happening in the Red Sea? You know, what is the impact on the maritime threat landscape today and, and into the future of this sort of drone technology and and this sort of capability to deliver payload to against against merchant shipping? So I'll, I'll jump in here, uh, Thomas. I think, first of all, what's happening in the Red Sea with respect to drones is part of a larger pattern that has been developing over over the last, say, 12 to 36 months of the maritime space becoming a more important, more and more important theater for, for conflict and disruption. So we saw it earlier and it's still ongoing with the Ukraine Russia conflict where the, the maritime fleet, particularly shadow tankers has played a greater role. We've seen a lot of drone attacks in the Black Sea. We've also seen in 2021, 22, and 23 uh, drone attacks on uh, vessels, particularly vessels owned by Israeli-linked businesses. So what we're seeing in the Red Sea, I think, is, is, is a continuation of a pattern that has been building, both with respect to conflict at sea, as well as the specific use of drones. And in, in, in the Red Sea now, of course, uh, missiles as well. What's really happening to my mind this time around is that we're seeing a normalization of the use of drones. And the reason I say normalization is that this time around, you're seeing a lot more attacks in a very short period of time, and they're a lot more visible. So for example, I referred a few moments ago to, to drone attacks on three different ships in 21, 22, 23. Almost nobody paid attention. Almost nobody knew about it. But the drone attacks that are occurring in the Red Sea, everybody knows about it. And so this is why I'm saying that now, from our perspective, you're starting to see a normalization, if you will, of this, of, of using this attack vector on the maritime industry. And it's also becoming global, right? Because now you, you've seen a lot of drones being used in, in, in the Black Sea against the merchant fleet. And of course, Navy, Navy as well. And now you're seeing it, uh, of course, in the Red Sea, right? So that's the second point. I think the third point that's very important to keep in mind is that what typically happens with these types of attack vectors, whether they be frankly cyber or, or drones, is that what starts out in the military domain trickles down into the paramilitary domain terrorist activity and criminal activity. And so when we speak about drones, we, you know, there are three C's. There's careless, clumsy, and criminal. And I think right now the, the criminal activity with drones has largely been on land, but I'm expecting that we're going to see more and more of it at sea. And we're already hearing about it in discussions that we're having with prospective clients that, that it's becoming a concern. Just to add to that, we've seen that the use of drones be quite transformative in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. In particular, examples are maritime drones, which have been used to sort of destroy 
or at least um, really damage vessels in a significant way, more so than, than, than sort of other traditional weapon systems. And drones have some real specific benefits, um, such as they can be cheaper to develop than weapon systems. But then when we look at specific areas such as Iran, they have, who are maybe conducting these attacks via, via their proxies, um, they have specific capabilities, um, which, which do result in, in especially sort of destructive drones, which are not necessarily aimed at the entire, at all of the vessels moving through this particular water or moving through a strategic water, mainly just the vessels, as Andrew noted, that are maybe um, linked to Israel in some way, but they can have collateral implications and this is not um, as Andrew says this is not a not a new a new issue I mean maritime vessels have been targeted even back in I think the 1980s in the Iran Iraq war I think in the 1980s there was a war and it was considered the tanker war because maritime vessels uh, vessels were targeted in that as well so as Andrew mentions it's, it's not a new concept but but with the the way in which drone technology is developing it is extra concerning and it's making drone security measures incredibly vital in today's sort of volatile environment absolutely yeah and I, I do have some personal experience of this kind of thing i mean it's it's, it's terribly terrifying really I, I sailed on a ship in the falklands war and i sailed on a gas tank in the gulf war that you just referred to so we used to trade color gas which is basically a mix of propane and butane from dubai and discharging bandar abbas in iran and we'd have the coffin boats coming in into the port or well, leaving the port in the morning and back in the evening with empty exocet boxes on the back of these boats and we'd see Tankers burning off Larak Island as we were leaving Bandarabas, headed for Dubai. So, you know, I mean, as a merchant sailor who's not got any axe to grind with anybody, seeing his fellow merchantmen, their vessels in flames is, is terrifying. And I, I, this whole, you know, Red Sea, Gulf of Aden, Bab El Mendeb, I mean, this area is almost unnavigable now. I mean, with the, with the various threats, we had the, the Somalian pirates and now we have this geopolitical issue. And the Houthis launching cruise missile attacks and drone attacks on, on ships for political ends. I mean, what was interesting there, Andrew, was you mentioned the criminalization of the use of drones. How yeah. do you see that attack vector threatening shipping going forward? So I think that you have, you have basically three things that, that are, that are already starting to happen or that are about to happen. So number one is you have kinetic attacks of drones essentially hitting ships. And I referred to, you know, to three different incidents that were not, I would say, military incidents. They were, they were, you know, it wasn't part of a, of a war. So that's one. The second is that drones are, are now being used for uh, criminal activity. So for example, if you want to, if you want to drop off a payload of illicit drugs on a ship, Great way to do it is, is through drones. And what we're hearing is that in Latin America, that's uh, particularly an issue and that, you know, ship owners need a new level of situational awareness to be able to ensure that, you know, they're not ending up with illicit drugs on their ships before they're about to sail. The third, and I think very interesting one and very creative one, if I may say, is the intersection between cyber and drones. So one particular uh, company that we're in, in very active discussions with expressed a concern to us about drones being used 
to approach the, the superstructure of the ship and penetrate the Wi-Fi network and and trigger a ransom attack. And so, you know, th- that is uh, th- that's something that that can be very very powerful. So those are the t- you know what we're seeing right now is those three things, right? Kinetic attack using drones for illicit purposes such as dropping off illegal payloads, and then the third one is the intersection using drones to conduct cyber attack on ships. Wow. Well, um, I think it's clear to all that this is a real um, tangible risk that ship owners are now paying serious attention to. What advice would you guys give to ship owners to better protect their vessels in this, in the face of this emerging and evolving respect? So look, I think the first thing to do is to divide the risk map, if you will, between traditional war risk, which is what we're seeing in the Red Sea at the moment, versus what I would call traditional shipping risk along the lines of for example, traditional piracy, right? So I think that, you know, and I'm sure that most companies today, as well as insurers, are operating under the, you know, the war risk clause and, and, and you know, assuming that what is happening in the Red Sea right now is pure war. But I think for more generalized uh, shipping activity, with cyber risk, it's really important to have a, a risk-adjusted approach to, to security. And what I mean by that is, you know, that depending upon where you're sailing, depending upon what type of vessel you have, depending upon perhaps who you are as an owner um, or who you're sailing for, like what owner you're sailing for, if you're a, if you're a, a, a vessel manager, that will influence what types of protective measures you take. And I think it's always important when, when one considers protecting oneself against risk because it is absolutely impossible to protect a hundred percent from both a logistical as well as a, as a financial point of view. It's, it's very important to, to just look at it in a value driven way and in a modular way. And then in terms of specific technologies that, that one can use, I think what's going to happen, I mentioned earlier that, um, the military trickles down into more kind of industrial applications and, 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 you know, criminal applications, if you will. And I think that the defensive capabilities also need to do that, right? So to trickle down from military all the way down to, you know, to more commercial or industrial applications for, for drone technologies. But more specifically, what are these defensive strategies that you can deploy? I mean, you know, if you look at piracy, one of the you know, the, the, the ways to combat piracy are armed guards on board, um, right. citadels on ships. Yeah. Um, in drones, you know, how, how do you defend your vessel, your merchant vessel against a drone, drone attack? It seems very difficult, right? So you're absolutely right. It is difficult and, but there are capabilities to do it. So in, in our case, what we, we're in the process of developing a counter drone technology for vessels. That is essentially what I would call a sensor fusion approach, um, to detecting drones. And we're also incorporating a neutralization capability as well, a non kinetic, uh, neutralization capability. And that neutralization capability is very important because, uh, if you're a merchant ship at sea, you almost don't want to know that a drone is coming at you if you can't do anything about it, right? So, and and a lot of the ship owners that we've spoken to already have said, well, you know, unless there's neutralization, no point. But neutralization brings up an interesting 
conundrum or topic because neutralization is regulated. You cannot just, you know, in any environment, just activate a neutralization. And so neutralization is typically jamming or spoofing. And so depending upon the environment in which you're operating, you may or may not be able to use neutralization capability. And so neutralization becomes particularly important because as a subject matter, because when you talk about counter drone technologies and solutions in the maritime ecosystem, obviously, in this discussion, we've been talking about merchant ships. But what's really not discussed as often is, for example, drone attacks on oil platforms. And that's, that's, that's a different set of problems with different challenges. So if a, if a drone attacks or, or intrudes upon an oil platform, that, that usually triggers an emergency shutdown, right? Which of course has its own implication. Then you have drone attacks or drone intrusions within port water. And then you have drone intrusions on coastal facilities, right? So these are different use cases within the maritime space where you need to be sensitive to both the client's needs as well as the local, local regulations. And most countries today do not allow you to go and neutralize drones. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm presuming that neutralizing techniques are not specific to the drone. They could be having un, unintended consequences on other assets in the, in the area, right? The drone, I'm sorry, the jamming technology can be used. So if you are, if you possess that technology and, and you're about to jam something, you could be a, a bad actor and, and jam something other than a drone, which would obviously be a problem for, for any, you know, environment and certainly the regulator. However, if you're jamming a drone that you suspect is about to attack you, you're only jamming in that specific channel, that specific frequency, excuse me. So because a drone is traveling at an, and has selected a specific frequency, when you jam that frequency, you're only targeting that drone. So you're not going to affect other other objects or other signal emitting objects in the area. And if you're on the high seas, I guess there's no issue around the use of that jamming technology. It's only when, when you're in waterways that are regulated by aviation law of the nation state or something like that. That's my understanding. I believe you're correct. Right. But I would say that most of the threats will typically occur, particularly for merchant ships, will typically occur in areas that are controlled by nation states. I mean, in, in, in waters that are controlled by nation states. I just wanted to uh, add that as, as Andrew's, uh, as, as Andrew's saying, sort of all, all of these technologies are becoming absolutely vital. And I think the way in which drones have become normalized in terms of their, their hostile usage and, and their, their, their destructive potential, it's kind of making it absolutely vital for, for vessel operators to be considering these drone measures of drone detection and drone neutralization almost as absolutely as vital as cyber measures uh, and other sort of safety measures. I don't think that these types of conflicts are going away. So I think that in terms of um, how to tackle them in the future, the best thing a vessel can do is, is, is be protected and protect themselves and be as resilient as possible based on these sort of measures that we're discussing. I think if you look at the evolution of technology, I mean, everybody's talking about Amazon deliveries via drone now. So I guess the commercialization of drone use is going to see a lot more drones in the air. And then when, with more drones in the air becomes the issue of how you detect the rogue drone, right? <laughs> From the, right. the commercial good guys who are using it for right. genuine commercial purposes. 
I mean, how are you going to be able, in the future, how are you going to detect the difference between what is a good drone and a bad drone if you're in, in a sort of port environment or something like that? Yeah, so that's a great question, and you bring up a great point. There is, there is a, a, an evolving, a rapidly evolving need for situational awareness. And certainly the ports that we're speaking to at the moment recognize that. And a lot of the counter drone technologies, including ours, have the ability to whitelist drones. So what you'll need to do is you register your drone. So let's say, as, as I'm sure you know, now you've got, you know, you've got ship to shore and shore to ship transfers now increasingly being done with drones in certain ports. So these drones, you know, are, are whitelisted. And so that if there's another drone that's flying, then clearly it wouldn't be part of that whitelisted list and it would be identified as either clumsy, careless, or criminal. And do they emit some sort of AIS signal that, that you can detect what they... Yes, it's the equivalent of an AIS signal. So the good drones, you know, like the, 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 the drones that you've, that, that, you know, that you've whitelisted emit signals that, that you'll be able to recognize. Uh, and most of the drones that, that will be traveling within, for example, port waters will be drones made by companies like DJI, which is a Chinese drone manufacturer. And DJI makes, I think, somewhere between 80 and 90% of all the drones in the world, right? And so they all emit signatures. But the key is that nefarious actors are not going to be using drones that have these signatures, these, as you, as you call them, you know, AIS signals, right? Just to use shipping lingo. And so it's important to, to have technology that enables you to recognize drones even when they don't have recognizable signatures. This seems to be like a fast-moving area of technical development. Um, so what advancements do you see in counter-drone technology? What, what can we expect to see in the, in the near future? So I think two things. Number one, I think that you're going to see a proliferation of companies offering drone services or drone products, counter drone products, excuse me, for the shipping industry. Number one. Number two, I think you're going to start seeing an integration of counter drone measures, including detection and neutralization combined. No, and, and when I say neutralization, I refer to non-kinetic neutralization because it's incredibly inefficient to have, for example, uh, somebody sitting there with a gun shooting down, shooting down a, a drone from a ship. So I think that will be the second thing. And then I think the third thing is that drones themselves and attack methods using drones are going to evolve. So now the, the cutting edge of drone attacks that people are talking about are not drones, but drone swarms, right? And so you, you're going to need to be able to, you know, to, to neutralize, I don't know, 25, 50, 100 drones at a time, right? So I think, I think that that's something that's going to be coming, my guess is, within the next five years, where, you know, drone swarms are going to become normal attack vector. That's what I would say. Feels like a Star Wars discussion, but I guess it's not, right? It's it's real, real, real life, real time, really. Well, a drone, a, a drone swarm. Yeah. How would it, how would a criminal deploy that, and for what purpose? So it's obviously easier to stop one drone versus, let's say, twenty five at once. And you know, if you're a terrorist, for example, and you want to wreak havoc, if you want to, if you want to disrupt the activities of a port. 
if you want to disrupt the activities of a refinery of a of an oil platform you know having i mean you can just imagine i mean you you know you referred to what you saw when you were sailing both in the Falklands and in the Middle East imagine having 25 flying objects approaching your ship at 75 km an hour you know i mean that's that's a massive effect absolutely terrifying yeah yeah it's terrifying but, so, right yeah. So, I mean, obviously we need to sort of turn our gaze to, to you guys repairing on. I mean, what does your, you know, how, how does your technology address, address these drone threats? So, so look, we, we are, we're innovators in the space because we are essentially developing military level technologies for industrial applications in the maritime space. And what I mean by military level is that we can, we can we can detect any kind of drone, including you know some basic military drones. I, I would not claim that we'll be able to detect the most advanced you know U.S. drones, but certainly basic military drones we'll be able to detect, and we will we will also have the ability to neutralize. And then the the, the important element when it comes to drone detection uh, is this ability to detect drones based on their physical properties as opposed to, for example, just the signatures. And so that means that we, we expect to be able to detect, you know, almost any drone barring the, 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 the high end military drones with, with very, very low, um, false positives, right? And we're combining neutralization with that. So I think we are, for the industrial world, we are on the cutting edge of, of, um, counter drone defense and in the maritime space. And when I say the maritime space, I'm referring to, Chips. I'm referring to oil companies and all their types of assets. I'm referring to ports, terminal operators, logistics companies. You know, these are all stakeholders in the maritime world that are vulnerable um, to to drone attacks. And are your technologies hardware and software based? Or yes, that's a great question. Yes, so hardware is required, whether on land or at sea. And, but, but the real value is in the, is, is in the technology itself. I'm sorry, in the software technology itself and, and the, the, the complexity. And if you will, the, uh, the real IP is in the interplay of the different, the different types of detection capabilities we're going to use combined with, combined with the neutralization capability. Because at the end of the day, we are assuming that our client is going to say, you know what? We, we on the vessel have no time, attention span, or even ability to deal with counter drone activity, which basically means that everything will need to be automated, right? And so for everything to be automated, you need to have obviously a very good interplay between the different types of, of technologies that we're going to use plus the neutralization piece. I mean, can ships' radars pick up drones approaching vessels, or are they not detectable by a normal radar? I don't think normal radar will necessarily detect drones. And even if you have the radar, then you still need a neutralization capability. You seem to be speaking very much in future tense here. What's the horizon date for having a workable solution that ship owners can deploy? So, look, we are we are at the moment we're looking for a partner to to deploy our technology on vessels. Because as you might imagine, you know, we're going to need classification society approval 
to put our hardware on, on board the vessel. We're going to need to make sure that it's properly ruggedized for, for the maritime space. And we're going to need to make sure that our technology doesn't interfere with any other equipment on the vessel. Right. And so we already have our land-based technology, the first part of it, uh, functioning properly as well as neutralization. But in terms of protecting actual ships, we are, we're in discussions with a couple of players, but we need to find, we need to find a willing party to, to, to go through that whole process. Because as you know, going through, going through class and, and going through the whole, you know, setup and ruggedization for C is, is, is a process that takes a bit of time. But I think from, from the day we have a go from a specific vessel owner, we, you know, we could have a properly functioning solution within a six to nine month time frame. Okay, that's great. So you mentioned that you, your land-based technology is up and running. What would make your counter-drone solutions effective in the maritime environment as opposed to the land-based environment? So they're going to be the same. So I'll give you an example, right? So our, our, our land-based technology can be applied to protecting oil platforms at sea, as an example. So the real issue is, okay, where do you house the hardware, right? And so that's, it, it's, it's more the, it's more the, if you, if you want to call it the, the logistic, logistical complexity of the sea than the technology itself. The technology itself is not the issue. And, and frankly, at sea, it's much easier to detect things because you, you know, you, you don't have obstructions. You don't have multi-path issues. You have open sea. So number one, you don't have obstructions. Number two, because it's open, you can detect a lot further. So whilst we could detect on land anywhere from 6 km to 10 km, depending on the topography at sea, it could be 15 to 20. And what, do you, what, what sort of levels of awareness are you finding in your discussions with ship owners about this emerging threat? So ship owners themselves at the moment are saying, well, no point having drone detection capabilities without neutralization, but we're not sure whether we can do neutralization or not. From a legal perspective or a technical perspective? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it just, it introduces a whole new set of discussion points and risks because it's, you're, you're really, you know, you're really sailing into the unknown, right? Like if you show up, and I don't know the answer to this, but if you show up with your vessel that has neutralization capabilities on board, what does that mean for port state control? Yeah, there's an asymmetry of risk here again, right? Because, you know, the rules don't apply to the bad guys, do they? So they can do, they can operate with immunity to, to, to adherence to any rules, whereas ship owners are, are constrained from a rules of engagement perspective, from any local laws that they may find themselves, you know, having to comply with because of the jurisdiction in which they find themselves. And I guess the unintended consequence here is, as you say, is, is the port state control issue, because if you put stuff on board the ship to use when it's transiting difficult waters like those we refer to, Red Sea, Bab El Mendeb yeah. or Gulf of Aden, you know, you can't put it off just for that voyage and then take it off before you get to the next port, can you? There's lots of things to be worked out here. Is that right? That's my, that's my intuition. You know, I mean, it's going to, you're going to have to go legal. You're going to have to go to the IMO and work things out with them as well. My, my suspicion is that, you know, the, the, what's going on in the Red Sea now will accelerate that process, you know, because I have a feeling the shipping community is going to start saying enough is enough. 
right? And it's possible that the, that the insurance community is going to say enough is enough. And if the insurance community says enough is enough, then you're going to start seeing more, more interest in, in really tackling the issues for all the different stakeholders, the port state control, the insurance, you know, the, the banks, right? Because, you know, suddenly the asset has an offensive capability, right? By being able to jam, what does that mean for, 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 for a bank? You know, does, does the, does the nature of the asset change? Yeah. You know, so these are all, these are all questions that need to be addressed. A lot of the stakeholders need to be brought to the table. And so this is why, from my perspective, it's not so clear what the path is and how quickly it can happen. That being said, I can tell you that in other segments of the maritime ecosystem, we're seeing a tremendous amount of traction from oil companies to, to ports, um, big, big traction. And I, I dare say more so than cyber. Yeah. So how, how are the port? Infrastructures and our port operators and the, the platform operators, how are they overcoming these legal challenges that you're alluding to? Well, for one thing, the port is in one location, obviously. And so they deal with their local authority, right? And, and in some cases, you know, we're dealing specifically with port authorities who are asking for this, right? So, so in, in, in essence, you know, they, they, they control the, the regulatory environment. And if, if they don't control it, at least they have easy access to whatever it is, the Ministry of Defense or the Civil Aviation Authority um, or, you know, the, the, the Coast Guard, who, you know, whoever. Because obviously within a port, you've got a lot of you've got a lot of stakeholders as well. Right. Because if you think about port waters, even the, the volumetrically from from the air, from from the. The actual sea level where this, you know, the, the actual sea all the way up to, you know, 40,000 feet, you have different stakeholders, right? So, so the civil aviation is going to control. I don't know if it's starting from 10,000 or 15,000 feet. I'm not quite sure. Then the coast guard will control, you know, maybe from the sea up to a few thousand feet. And of course, every, every, you know, country might be different, but. The only point I'm trying to make to you is that, you know, right now countries are having discussions about, okay, who controls what, who makes a decision where, you know, even for the different layers of the airspace just above the, the, the waterline. Well, it's a very complex, complex subject. I hadn't quite realized before we jumped on this call, just, just the nature of the complexities around this whole threat vector um, and this emerging and fast moving Technology, which can be used for all sorts of nefarious um, means against oh. against commercial shipping. Thank you very much for for speaking with us today. I mean, we could probably go on and on and on because it's a fascinating subject, and it could be good to have you back on the podcast as as these things evolve further. I mean, would you like to leave our listeners with any helpful closing remarks uh, around the subject? Yeah, sure. Look, thank you so much for for having us again, and um, and you know for your for your interest in both. Uh, Security in the maritime space, as well as uh, as well as um, counter drone um, um, possibilities in the maritime space. You know, we at Repairion, our objective is is essentially to provide an integrated platform to cover these two attack vectors, cyber and 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 drones. And and the reason that we're covering both of these is because we feel that they're very similar attack vectors, right? They are both. Both of these attack vectors 
you have easy access to technology, the technology is low cost, the ability to execute is very, it's very easy to execute or ease of execution, very difficult to detect until it's too late, very difficult to attribute in most cases. And in both, both cyber as well as drones, they're, you know, they're highly, highly effective attack vectors, uh, either for criminal activity or to cause some sort of, of geopolitical disruption. So I think it's, uh, I think it's, you know, I, I think that the conversation we're having is unfortunately very, very timely. Well, it's always a pleasure to speak to, to you. Andrew, thank you for staying up very late in Singapore to join us today. Jesse, always a pleasure to see you and speak to you. And yeah, all the best with your ongoing discussions with maritime stakeholders. I, I trust you'll have every success in deploying your, your very much needed uh, solution to this uh, emerging problem. Thank, thank you. you so much. And if any, if either you or your colleagues or anyone listening wants to learn more about us, feel free to go to repairion.io to learn more about what we do and, and to get in touch with us either from the website or, or on LinkedIn. Great. Thank you. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Maritime Risk Podcast brought to you by Shoreline Limited. We hope this episode has shed some light on the diverse and complex risks facing the maritime industry today. We would like to thank our sponsor, Maritime Insurance Solutions Limited, for their invaluable support in making this podcast possible. To access more episodes of our podcast series, visit our website at www.shoreline.bm. Remember, in the ever-changing world of maritime risk, preparation is key. Until next time, fair winds and following seas.